1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, of PropG pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Alex Ward, and I'm here as always with Jen Williams. Hi. And we have two guests in New York uh, to talk about Bolivia. You may have heard that there is quite a crisis going down in the country. There has been a bit of a political revolution that has led to the president's uh, exile effectively to Mexico. There has been a new person becoming uh, coming into power as the interim president and there is still political revolutions and violence on the streets and on top of that there is the lingering question which is did the president who left Eva Morales was he ousted in a coup or not and all that is today on worldly part of the Vox Media podcast network and for that we have people in New York we have Ivan Rebolledo, who is the managing partner at Terra Nova how are you Ivan I'm well,
3: thank you. Thanks for the invite. Of course.
2: And we have Zeeshan Aleem, a columnist advice, and a former colleague of ours here at Vox. And he used to sit next to me and annoy me all the time. Zeeshan, how are you?
3: I can't say I'm happy to be here, but.
2: <laughs> so. Let's just go into it right away. Ivan, I've been talking to a bunch of people saying that we were going to do an episode on Bolivia, and I usually get a blank stare from people thinking they don't know the situation. And it turns out that the blank stare comes from what is a Bolivia. So can you give us just a bit of a primer on um, the country and and why it matters so much?
4: You know, when I was in uh, grad school, a professor of mine told me once, uh, if you want to Make a name for yourself in the region. Pick a country that no one really ever focuses on. At <laughs> the time, there it was Paraguay, Uruguay, and Bolivia. I have a Bolivian mother, so Bolivia was the country I obviously picked. Bolivia is landlocked, center of Latin America, second, third, depends who you speak to and what the numbers look like that particular year. Uh, the poorest country in the, in the hemisphere, it's uh, extractive-based Economy has a very large indigenous uh, population base. Numbers range from 63 to 68 percent of its uh, base is indigenous. And it has had an enormous growth uh, stretch over the last few years, a lot attributed to President Morales. It's very diverse. Geographically, from a tourism perspective, it really is a gem. Uh, but I'm I'm somewhat biased.
2: Fair enough, uh, Zishan, you were just there visiting towns and in, in different parts of the country to get a sense of what. The economy and how the country was was doing under Evo Morales uh, before this entire thing started, which we will get to in a bit. Can you just give us a, a flavor of of what you learned, what you saw, and and why Morales has become such an important figure, other than of course being the president of the country?
3: Yeah. So I was there in uh, Bolivia this spring for about a month, and I visited, um, you know, over half a dozen towns and cities. Um, you know, I saw a lot of the country and and was you know truly amazed by the place. I should say, there's difference between the sort of political scene and the economic scene, and I'll actually start with the economic point. You know, I visited a small village called Suinia on the coast of Lake Titicaca, a beautiful remote place, um, just a few hundred people, mainly fishers and farmers. And it is really a great metaphor for the transformation of Bolivia's economy under uh, Morales. So, In Sawinia, before Morales was elected, there were were, uh, only sort of unpaved roads. It was very hard to get in and out of there to the local uh, town of Copacabana. After Evo took power, this, uh, with sort of the economy improving and also with uh, more public funding, they were able to get paved roads, which allowed them to enhance their sort of commerce, you know, shipping goods out of the village, as well as send uh, children to a local school by bus. Uh, Before they had well water, uh, post, uh, you know, Morales, they had, uh, you know, running water. Um, There's also a lot of uh, sort of clear investment in the village. For instance, there was a hospitality center, uh, which was basically kind of a dining hall and a few cottages, and the idea was to encourage tourism and for people across the region to see it as a kind of getaway. Uh, there's this very sort of charming floating uh, conservatory that had these endangered giant frogs that people would come and see. And they were even building, when I was there, a very very small airport, uh, both again meant to encourage travel in and out of the area and also potentially to be used for emergencies. Uh, Although it was unclear whether or not locals had the income to be able to fly. Uh, Another thing that when I spent the day in Suenil, a lot of people mentioned was a system of bonos, which is basically uh, a variety of modest cash transfers that are given to parents of young students. They're given to pregnant women or women with children under the age of two who don't have health insurance and also to the elderly through a a pension system that goes out to people uh, over the age of 60. They're very modest sums of money, but in a country that Bolivia that has historically been deeply impoverished, they made a huge difference.
0: To kind of remind listeners um, who may not be familiar, so Evo Morales, and I think that's a good way of explaining that, Evo Morales, uh, in addition to being the first indigenous president, is a socialist, right? Um, Not in the way that we you know, kind of pretend to call people socialist, who are, you know, social Democrats or just not socialists at all in the United States. He's an avowed actual socialist. So I think that's a good kind of reminder for people that, you know, these kinds of programs, like the bonus that you were talking about, Zeeshan, are part of why, you know, the economy, you know, was improving and part of why he was popular, which brings me, I guess, to the question. And we were talking a little bit, you know, before the show Sean, that you said that the political scene was different than the economic scene. Can you describe a little bit about what, you know, you saw on that front?
3: Yeah. So in contrast to a sort of scene of um, economic uh, stability and general optimism, e- even, uh, you know, a kind of across the ideological spectrum and different sectors, politically speaking, there was a sense of, uh, of real growing disenchantment. Up to his resignation, Evo Morales was uh, sort of longest standing head of state in Latin America. He's been in power uh, since 2006. And what was interesting is that uh, there are a lot of people who from the beginning, you know, didn't like his agenda. But uh, overall, over the course of his tenure, he's generally been popular. That really seemed to take a sharp turn after, you know, a, a referendum in 2016, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more later. But the, the, the kind of quick version of it is that he lost a referendum during which he asked if he could scrap constitutional limits so that he could run again for a fourth term. But despite losing that referendum, he actually through a controversial legal decision before uh, a constitutional court ended up winning a legal case and then deciding to run again.
2: That court was packed with his – Allies, right? Yeah,
3: we can get. We so we can have a discussion. You know, I, I guess about that as well. I, it definitely was people who were are pro mas for sure. Um, you know, I, I've had. Uh, uh, sort of Mark Goodale, an anthropo- uh, anthropologist, talk about the fact that, well, it's not really fair to call it pact because of the fact that the, the magistrates are come through a popular vote. But there's no doubt that it was a highly partisan thing. We see similar things in democracies all over. So, yeah, I mean regardless of what we think about the court's decision just for now because we can g- dig into that later, I'll just say that that was a very controversial decision and it was very polarizing. And a lot of people who used to support him ended up actually saying like – I don't want to support AVO anymore. And so, 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 Ivan, so
2: Zishan just laid out a, a pretty big lay of the land here for Bolivia, right? That there were economic reforms that proved pretty popular, proved pretty uh, important, right? Bringing tons of people out of poverty, helping the economy grow. Then there's this referendum where he asked to take a fourth term, which is not constitutionally allowed, at least four consecutive terms. Uh, it doesn't go through, and yet he clearly kind of wants to run again, and this breaks trust, as Zeeshan was laying out. There were other issues here as well that we've talked about before, right, that that leading up to the election in October, which we're going to get to, there were other issues plaguing Morales's candidacy.
4: Yeah, but if you allow me just to go back and just to please uh, echo what Zishan was saying, uh... Morales was extremely fiscally responsible. Unlike Maduro in Venezuela, Correa in Ecuador, Morales and his economic team were very fiscally responsible. The Bolivian economy thrived under his leadership. International reserves were built up. Morales didn't uh, nationalize the oil sector when he came in. He very adroitly renegotiated contracts with the oil sector and the mining sector. And these companies didn't leave Bolivia. They stayed on because they had a good deal. They just the royalty split changed drastically. And that's how he managed to bolster the national treasury. And he was able to develop these very robust cash transfer programs. So that's important to say. To answer your question, ever since the referendum of 2016, his administration has been plagued with enormous corruption issues that unfortunately have followed him. And that has been one of the reasons why his popularity has been dropping. Uh, there was the issue, if the New York Times once called him the worst boyfriend in the world, uh, <laughs> uh, where uh, he had an affair with some woman. Uh, he appointed her to a position um, of authority where she uh, awarded contracts to a Chinese construction company, the, the city hall of El Alto, um, where there was a case against Moss politicians mysteriously burned down. There bit case after case after case that took a hit on Morales' popularity. Ultimately, the biggest hit was um, the referendum and him him losing that referendum and the popularity, the loss of popularity and integrity that he suffered.
0: So that brings us to... What basically just happened uh, in this last couple of months here? So, on October 20th, they have elections, right? Um, and the OAS, the Organization of American States, uh, is a group of you know states in Latin America who are kind of a regional organization. Uh, they have their headquarters in Washington D.C., uh, just up the street from Vox's offices here in D.C. They are serving in this capacity as election monitors, and they basically say that there's uh, they find a ton of electoral problems with with the election. There's this period that happens where, as they're counting votes, uh, it looks like Morales is not going to win or he's behind. And then suddenly, for like this 24-hour period, everything goes dark and there's like the counting freezes and everything stops and there's not really any explanation. And then when it starts up again, suddenly Morales is winning and ends up winning. And so the OAS puts out this really damning report and says, you know, there were major irregularities. We need to have new elections. We need to dissolve this result. Um, and that kind of kicked off these massive protests that then led to you know, the military to basically ask or encourage Morales to step down. He steps down, flees to Mexico, seeks asylum, and that's kind of what happened in this past week, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in a sense. I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's important to know that, like, you have to get at least a 10-point margin to, to win. Morales was not getting that when they were doing the count. Um, after that blackout, he had that count. The the OAS stepped in because of seeming irregularities, and there clearly were, and the, and the report is, is quite damning. Before we get to the, the protests and sort of why—and you, you mentioned it, but to, to get to why, like— Losing the police and military uh, matters for Morales. Um, Ivan, you were an OAS election observer before. Can you just kind of briefly mention sort of how people can verify that there were irregularities in election? Because I think this has been a very contentious point in this entire drama.
4: For many, many years, the Tribunal Supremo Electoral and the electoral authorities in Bolivia has have been a very respected institution. So much so that... Uh, Those officials and that know-how has been exported to other electoral um, institutions in the region. So their experts have been lent uh, so they can train and pass their knowledge base to to others. Since the Morales administration has come into power, there has been an erosion of that trust in that institution – The OAS has a very robust uh, division called uh, the Electoral Observation Division in D.C. um, that sends out these missions uh, constantly for presidential elections, regional, gubernatorial elections. And they have a technical team. What first went down to Bolivia was um, an electoral observation mission. There are about 96 observers. It's funded by member states. And that mission was led by a former Costa Rican foreign minister. And uh, a lot of the controversy behind all this is uh, the Secretary general of the OAS, Almagro, had been in Bolivia several months prior. He's an ardent critic of Maduro. He has been at the forefront of criticizing that regime in Venezuela. And he had been a critic of President Morales. They've been in Twitter wars. And... He arrives to Bolivia at the invitation of the Morales administration, and he kind of does an about-face. He decides, while in Bolivia, to support Morales's bid for another run for president. He says it's his human right to pursue an election— Another term, he goes down to the Chapare, which many, very few heads of state do, because it's very controversial to go down to the coca-growing region of Bolivia and be seen and taken photographs. It's uh, very few heads of states and heads of multilateral organizations do that, but he decides to do it. So the opposition cries bloody murder, and the, he he opens up this negative front. Uh, so. When the observers come down, there's this really big anti-OAS sentiment that has continued during this whole process. But I have to say, with the visit of the OAS mission and the stellar job they did in being quick and decisive in the report and noting all these irregularities, um, I think the opposition calmed down in in their suspicions. We see the results, which you've all already elaborated on the the fact that there isn't this uh, definitive uh, result. There's a decision, a binding decision that everyone agrees upon that the OAS will send down an electoral audit commission, which is made of true experts. They're not observers. They are electoral Audit experts that come down, and they were supposed to have a week to finish their job, but they were rushed to finish because they saw the violence that was taking place in Bolivia. Uh, So they finished their job two days ahead of time. They sent that report back to the Secretary General because that's the way it works. The report is finished, it's shared first with the Secretary General, who then decides who he gives it out to. And he immediately received it. I understand two hours later, he tweeted it. Uh, because they realized the gravity of what was going on, the violence that was taking place, and they felt that and that report was then received by the president, and he saw kind of no way out. He decides that he calls for brand new elections, not even a runoff, not, not even the second round. He says, I call for new elections. Uh, I he decides that there's a need to change the composition of the t- of the electoral council, and then we see what falls from there.
2: Right. So what we've seen then is that there have been uh, massive protests that have led to some violence, uh, a fairly bad situation for some, uh, roughing up of politicians, burning of houses, um, some, some bad stuff. But Morales ends up going to Mexico uh, in part because, as you mentioned, that the protests are out on the streets. Uh, he sees the writing on the wall from the OAS report. He's lost the support of the, of the military and the police. So he really has no place to go. So he ends up going—well, he does. He ends up going to Mexico and— And from there, he's calling it a coup. He says what happened to him is a coup. Uh, And in fact, he's gotten some support from American politicians like Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswomen Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And there are other people, including, you know, the Trump administration itself, the president and the secretary of state, in fact, are saying that it wasn't a coup and it is a good uh, democratic moment for Bolivia, in part because... Morales and his folks have gone out, and now an opposition politician who's the vice president of the Senate is now in charge, uh, or at least an interim position, and and in theory will call for new elections. So that's the state of play. What we're going to get into after the break is, is Morales right? Did he suffer a coup, and is that why he's no longer in power in Bolivia? We'll be right back with that.
1: You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work
2: All right. Uh, welcome back to Worldly. We are now going to talk about, was what happened in Bolivia a coup? Jen, you have some thoughts.
0: Yeah. So I just mostly, you know, was kind of wondering, I, I'm i by no means a, a Bolivian expert. And, you know, but I was kind of reading what was going on and, you know, following very closely what was happening. And it seemed kind of pretty clear on, you know, first read that it was, you know, he, uh, that Morales, you know, they were massive protests that the OAS had, you know, done this report and said, you know, the elections were were marred and that, you know, he had lost the support, Alex, as you said, of the military and the police, the military had asked him to step down and he did. And it seemed pretty clear that this was positive move, hopefully for democracy in the sense that he was trying to essentially usurp a fourth term. Uh, and then I started seeing, you know, people like Senator Bernie Sanders, who he was actually a little bit careful. He said it seems like it might be a coup. A lot of, like, very kind of leftist politicians who are sometimes ideological fellow travelers of, of, you know, socialists like Morales calling this a coup. And I— was kind of like, wait, what? How is this a coup? Because he, you know, he stepped down. It's not like the military, you know, took over in any way that I, following coups that I have followed in many other countries. It didn't seem like that. So I I was really confused. And, you know, uh, Code Pink, they're a very kind of, Far-leftist, I would say, organization was out protesting at the Bolivian embassy in D.C. Yeah,
2: they reached out to me to go cover them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they were calling this a CIA-backed coup. They were saying that the OAS is a CIA-D.C., you know, American government front because it's across the street from the White House. Uh, I mean, we're down the street from the White House. We're not also fronted by the CIA. But— that's exactly
2: um, what we would say. Yeah,
0: exactly. But, you know, so there was a lot of this, like, very kind of leftist extreme kind of rhetoric that this was this coup that was backed by the CIA. And, you know, to be fair, the CIA has done a few things like that so in, in Latin America. In Latin America,
2: for example, And yeah, they didn't
0: no. uh, usually go so well right. uh, for the people of Latin America. So I wanted to get, you know, the sense of the experts, Zeeshan and Yvonne. Is there any legitimacy to the fact that this was a coup? Is there any, you know evidence, legitimacy that the United States was in any way involved. Is that even remotely like a plausible explanation or was this the way I originally understood it, just like a popular uprising that kind of led to Morales to flee?
3: Whether or not it's a coup is kind of the million dollar, it's like the $10 million question at this point in time in in, in the debate on this issue. You know, I've been talking uh, with sort of dozens of Bolivians in, in many cities across the country And, you know, well over half a dozen social scientists and political experts who specialize in Bolivia on this question of whether or not there's a coup going on. And there is nothing approaching a consensus on this issue. It is truly remarkable how hotly debated it is. And there's a whole range of there's it's not a coup. There is it was a full fledged coup. There's it was a soft coup, a military coup, a right wing coup. You hear everything. It is overdetermined, which is a sort of social scientific term for for saying that a phenomenon has multiple potential causes that could, on their own, be sufficient for explaining something. So, what we have is between the October twentieth election and Abel's resignation, uh, three three weeks later, uh, we have a lot of different things building up that could explain why he resigned. First and foremost, of course, we see weeks of demonstrations. Protests, uh, massive strikes, uh, street fights between opposition supporters and mass supporters going on becoming increasingly violent. These things were not actually kind of winding down, but they were actually gaining steam over time. And based on uh, all the reports that I've read and all the people I've interviewed, uh, while these demonstrated, uh, demonstrations were primarily sort of middle class and sort of new middle class or rising middle class uh, at, at their core in terms of majority of people showing up, there was also a, a significant contingent of uh, working class and poor people as well. And over time, these demonstrations seem to grow in popularity. There is also the issue of in the days leading up to Avo's resignation, we have the fact that the police uh, decided to start uh, going on strike. ...and stop uh, sort of, you know, acting as a barrier between opposition mass supporters, right? So it started off smaller and then uh, right before he was resignation, which was on Sunday... ...it started on Friday, the police started striking... ...and then on Saturday it happened all over the country. So what you then have is a kind of receding of the state... ...and even though the police were ostensibly striking uh, for better pay... ...and, um, you know, because they're known for being sort of exploited in terms of their pay and their work conditions... Obviously, there are direct implications of saying you're going to go on strike when the country is being racked by protests. It is effectively saying that you are not supporting MAS anymore. So it is ideologically laden, even though there are probably lots of different political views among the police who went um, on strike. There may have also just been a general reluctance to participate in something that seemed to just be coming completely out of control. And then you also have the issue of of, of notable breaks from Evo's base, which had already been depleted leading up to the election. Already the fact that he was not doing nearly as well in in, in the election results as he had in previous years shows you that his base had started to splinter. But on Sunday, you have the Miners Union and you have the COBE, which is the kind of the nation's largest federation of labor unions, say that, you know, he should, for the sake of restoring stability in the country, uh, resign.
2: When you put all that together, it sounds like there was a lot of outside pressure to go and, and kind of get them out. I, I know you you didn't really fall one way or the other there, Zishan, but it does sound like there was, a because of that pressure, I can see the sort of coup argument. Uh, Ivan, I, I don't know, any thoughts on this? I,
4: I want to go back to the U.S. and by no way, shape, or form am I an advocate. I'm very critical of the role of the United States in the region historically. But the U.S. Embassy in La Paz has been considerably pared down since the beginning of the Evo administration. So it's a very small embassy with a very small footprint. Um, our embassy barely opens their mouth, uh, has barely opened their mouth over the last 10 years. Um, I made the rounds over the last two weeks in Washington at Senate Foreign Relations, House Foreign Affairs, State Department, NSC talking about Bolivia. And, you know, Bolivia is not an important player on the Washington scene, these theories out there that this is a CIA, CIA involvement in a coup, I, I think, are are just absurd. B- Bolivians are a non-violent people. I think that in the very end, we saw the police and we saw the army just raise their hands and say, "We don't want bloodshed. We don't want violence." We've had seven deaths. You know, the interesting thing, Morales. During the beginning of this violence, after the the, the OAS's initial observation, uh, right after the first election, Morales gave the police a $500 raise across the board. And in spite of that raise, the police decided to mutiny. So, I mean, I think to say that this was a coup is absurd. I think generally the police and the military— and Realized the person that went in to talk to him, the chief of staff of the military, was handpicked by Morales. He, he was a Morales man, he, he was very loyal to Morales, and he went in and spoke to Morales and said, you need to step down, Mr. President. I, I think it was clearly the decision of Morales to step down. He saw that his top lieutenants on every side were resigning. His, uh, his ministers, his top congresspeople, resignations left and right, he saw no other alternative but to resign. Uh, you know, I, I want to quote something I got from the New York Times, which I found very interesting. Uh, what brought Morales down was not his ideology or foreign meddling, as he claimed, but the arrogance of the populist. And and I really think that's the case.
3: The reason I would say that there's an argument to be made that it is a coup is because of the fact that we don't have the counterfactual where the, mili- the head of the military and the head of the police don't suggest Avo steps down. And, you know, the, the, the term suggest was used, but can the most powerful actors uh, representing, you know, the, the state uh, you know, in, in terms of their ability to exercise raw military power, the head of the police and the head of the military, suggest something like a president step down? And can we remove, extricate, that sort of power from the fact that, you know, Morales ended up flying on his way out of the country uh, minutes later. The issue is that while there are lots of things that contribute to his resignation, the fact that the military suggested he move and then he does so immediately afterwards really makes it difficult to say that this was not a sudden sort of non-democratic transfer of power, there's also the fact that uh, the, the resignations going on in Avo's uh, cabinet—you uh, know, not just him and his vice president, but also uh, you know the, the, the head of the Senate and the head of the Chamber of Deputies, who are also both part of Moss—resigned uh, re- at a point when uh, lawmakers, including the head of the Chamber of Deputies, ha- were having their houses set on fire, having family members taken hostage, has been reliably reported. And so there's a real fear of safety for their lives. And it's hard to say that this wasn't happening under duress. There's also this sort of question of even if uh, originally it's not clear that there was... I think one of the reasons there's this ambiguity about whether or not it was a coup is because there's not a clear person architecting. There's there's not one actor that's engineering the whole thing. And it's not like the military sought to grab power. There seemed to be a true... Vacuum, But I think one of the characterizations that I've heard from a number of people is that if this wasn't originally a coup and it wasn't coordinated, it has sort of started to become one. And there, there's a few reasons that's pointed out. But probably the biggest thing to point out is, is of course, those attacks on mass politicians that happened you know, very aggressively on Sunday uh, and after Abel leaves the country. You also have the fact that uh, Janine Añez uh, swore herself into power uh, this week. Uh, without uh, quorum from Senate, which means that she basically ended up not really respecting the sort of democratic process. So
2: so let's get into that. So Janine Añez is the vice president of the Senate. She's fifth in line uh, in succession. And it's fair that she is now the interim president because um, one through four are gone. So she's taken over. The issue here is that she is a right-wing politician who has not been kind at all to Morales and Mas's leftist politics. and, And on top of that, that it seems she said some very troublesome things about indigenous peoples of Bolivia. And so she, as as Ishan rightly noted, she's like come in being like the Bible has returned to the the center of of government. Uh, This is a worrying sign for a lot of people and for reasons we can't really get into, but there has been a long-term struggle between a Catholic part of the country or Christian part of the country um, and and indigenous peoples. Got it. The, The issue here, though, is that like, will she take, power herself she has se- seemed to suggest that she will call for elections um, as is mandated her the interim president must call for elections within 90 days of, of assuming power so that could happen but there's a, a bit of a ticking uh, time bomb here and that is that uh, and correct me if I'm wrong because Yvonne you and I have talked about this before that the legislative of Bol- uh, branch of Bolivia like their terms are up in January, and that will run up to
4: that deadline. Yeah, so l- l- let me just backtrack for a second and and just mention um, Evo resigns and he doesn't leave the country right away. You know, he decides to go to the Chapari, his stronghold, where he's gonna be protected by the coca growers. And he sits there for two, three days waiting to see what he's gonna do. He didn't wanna leave the country, as you know. Um, he was supposed to go to Argentina. The the invitation was retracted. He then z- ends up going to um, Mexico on a very unusual route that is still not clear. Instead of flying direct, he goes to Paraguay. He makes an unscheduled stop. Uh, there are questions about that stop. Uh, uh, trucks approach the vehicle. Things were loaded. Things were unloaded. So. That route and that visit is being looked at, investigated, uh, so so that's unusual. Secondly, this election and the way it was done, very unusual, I agree. Uh, But there was no quorum. It was done on purpose by the opposition. Uh, So the constitutional court found a loophole uh, to uh, name President Añez, who is not the ideal person. I admit that. A loophole was found. The Constitutional Court came out with a ruling. I don't know the exact technicality behind it, but it it apparently holds up to water, and that's the mechanism that was used to install her as president. As of this morning, very early, about 5.30 a.m., uh, it has been proven by third-party sources um, that those tweets that are attributed to her um, – are fake.
2: Oh, okay. That's good um, to know.
4: Because there there are tweets that are coming out that are very disturbing uh, about some comments she's made. One tweet has been debunked. I, I I saw last night that another one has come out. People from Eastern Bolivia, and I'm probably gonna get massacred for saying this, but there is a tendency to 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 generalize uh, and there is a lot of racism that, that that sprouts from from that region and from politicians from that region. Um, another disturbing issue that I find is that, you know, one of the first things she's done is she's recognized the government of, of, of Guaido. And Juan Guaido so the, the, is rec- the interim president
2: of, of Venezuela, right? The, I'm the, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The,
4: inter- the interim president of Venezuela. She's recognized that government. Uh, she's invited Guaido to name an ambassador, which is important. But, you know, when, when you're in power for 90 days, do you not have more important things to do and worry about a transitional government and elections? Um, But maybe it's payback for for the fact that he recognized her. I don't know. Um, There's a very important march that's going to take place today. It started this morning from Cochabamba up to La Paz. The cocaleros are coming through. There's concern that it's going to be a very violent march in support of Evo. Uh, Last night, again, at 3 or 4 a.m., the lower house, the lower house of Congress that's still controlled by the MAS, has named a new president of that lower house. And they've declared Evo the sitting president of Bolivia. Uh, So uh, things are not looking good. It continues to be a a, a very uh, chaotic situation on the ground.
2: And uh, that seems to be a place where we usually end worldly shows. I think things are bad and could get worse. Uh, We will continue to follow this story. Uh, it's a very important one, not just for the country, but also just for the region, and, and to see the, the 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 broad change of politics that we're seeing not in Latin America and 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 frankly, um, a lot of places elsewhere. I want to thank our guests uh, Zishanalim, our our beloved former colleague um, Ivan Bravoiedo, who has is, is has been helping us really all week on on thinking through Bolivia and and and, and what's been going on. Uh, and of course, uh, Jen Williams, who continues to be uh, a guiding light for all of us here. Our uh, producer, Jackson Bierfeldt. Our engineer, Malachi Brodus. And if you have any thoughts on the new format here at Worldly, uh, please give us a, a holler at worldlyatvox.com and rate and subscribe wherever you are listening to us. Um, we'll see you next week.
0: Bye.